Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. Now, when we think about growing plants, or especially in an agricultural context, we automatically think that bigger plants or bigger trees would be better, right? More stuff. But is that always the case? And there's a lot of advantages to compact growth. So dwarfing genes have been a massive contributor to food production, something like billions of people have been fed by dwarf varieties or genes that control size when incorporated into things like wheat and rice. But genes that affect that elongation growth sometimes have problematic secondary effects, things like less flowering or maybe lower yields. So alternative genes that control plant stature are of incredibly important interest to agriculture and basic science. So today's guest discovered just that and her results were published in the November 23rd, 2022 issue of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, or PNAS, a really nice journal. So today we'll talk to Dr. Philippa Borrell. She's a group leader in the Department of Crop Genetics at the John Innes Center in Norwich, UK. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Borrell. Thank you. I'm glad to be here today. I'm glad you're here too, because this is a topic that I'd like to cover for a long time, and your recent paper talks about this idea of a new way to create a dwarf plant. And I always thought this was a cool topic because I think most of the audience doesn't appreciate why dwarf plants are important and, and the different ways to make it happen. We automatically think we want plants to be big and tall in stature and, and vigorous. But what's the advantage of being a dwarf plant or a semi-dwarf? So when we think about shopping for food, which most of it comes from plants, then it's a particular part of the plant that we're eating. So in the case of fruits or grains like rice or wheat, then we're eating the fruit of the plant. And if we grow a really big plant, then we have a lot of parts of the plant we're not going to eat, like the stems or the leaves, for example. So if we have a dwarf plant that has kind of shorter stem, but it still makes the same size grains, then that could be quite an advantage for, for us as consumers. So why is that an advantage for us as a consumer to have a, a shorter stem, you know, if we're just eating the same grain? The advantage is you can, in the same amount of area, make more grain because, for example, for wheat, which is a major cereal crop, then if the plants are really tall, which they have been historically, then they often suffer from lodging, so they can fall over in high winds. And that means that it's really hard to harvest the grain. So although the plant could make the same amount of grain, a lot of it's lost into the soil. So if we have a, a dwarf plant, then it's less likely to fall over and we can harvest all of the grain. That makes a lot of sense. Is there also a question of, of investing in that biomass that's not really used? I've, you know, you're making this tall plant, or is that just expansion in water? Or is it actually more stuff that's creating that taller plant? Yeah, exactly. So there's more stuff is used to make the stems and the leaves and the parts that we don't need. So by reallocating where the, the, the stuff that makes up the plants, the carbon inside the plant, then you can send more of it into the harvested part of the plant in these dwarf vines. 
Yeah, I don't think people ever really think about this, but okay, let's talk about what are some of the plant species where dwarfing is really important to production? Yes, I think two really key examples are wheat and rice. So they're generally around the world grown in semi-dwarf varieties nowadays, but also other crops like fruit trees are often grown as dwarf varieties because you can fit more trees per orchard then and have a higher fruit production. Yeah, that's a really good example. I, I grow fruit trees and always put them on semi-dwarfing rootstocks because we can fit more trees. And, and you don't get these massive 30, 50 feet tall trees that require, you know, mountain climbing gear to go for harvest fruit. So really important for, for horticultural production too. But the big place this made an impact was in the Green Revolution. And so why was dwarfing so important to build into these key food staple crops? Yeah, so it was really a, a major challenge in the kind of middle part of the 20th century to increase food production, to be able to feed the growing population of the world. Millions of people depend on staple crops like wheat and rice. So we had to come up with some ways to improve the amount of wheat or rice grains that could be produced on the same amount of area. And as you said, the Green Revolution, which happened in, from the 1960s onwards, made a huge difference to the amount of production that was possible per area. And a key part of this was the introduction of these semi-dwarf varieties of wheat and, and rice that could work were shorter. So more of their fixed carbon was allocated into the grain and it was easier to harvest because they didn't fall over. So that was a really key part. Plus with these semi-dwarf varieties, you can apply much more fertilizer. So produce higher yields because you have better inputs without running the risk of their plants lodging. Yeah, this is really an important point. This was work done by Norman Borlaug. And, and colleagues, and really was revolutionary and really can be blamed for feeding a billion people. And, and some of these places like Pakistan, Mexico, India, where where there was food shortage, and certainly to call it food insecurity would be an understatement. And so this idea of dwarfing really fed billions of people. Exactly. And I think Norman Borlaug was awarded the Nobel Prize for Peace for this work. Yeah, that was, and well-deserved, and I, it goes under everybody's radar. I'm surprised more people aren't aware of, of who he is and what he did because of this tremendous contribution. But what are the ways, so if we start talking about mechanism, what are the different ways that dwarfing usually is conferred? So what, what, what happens genetically to get a dwarf? Yeah, so these semi-dwarf varieties of wheat and rice that were used in the Green Revolution generally affects a particular plant hormone. So they have a genetic change in them that alters either the synthesis or the signaling related to gibberellic acid, which is a growth hormone that promotes growth in plants. So these particular lines have a mutation in genes related to gibberellin and, and therefore don't grow as, as tall. Yeah, so let, let's just touch on gibberellic acid just a little bit. So this is, as you said, a plant hormone that causes this elongation growth. And so these uh, dwarf varieties are just ones that either can't make the hormone or are, or are insensitive. So they either can't make it or can't per perceive it. And so yes. they, they tend to stay short. But are there other problems when you upset gibberellic acid sensitivity or production? Yeah, so these plants, they, they generally look reasonably similar to the kind of conventional taller varieties, but they do have some potential drawbacks. So one particular one is that this change to gibberellic acid means 
that the plant is shorter, but also at all stages of the plant's life cycle. So we, we actually want this to happen at maturity so that when the plants are developing their grain and then we're about to harvest them, that they're shorter, so they're less prone to lodging. But also even at seedling stage, you see differences in wheat. And this is a problem where for seedling emergence from the soil. So if you sow the wheat seeds deeper underground because you want them to be able to access some groundwater, for example, in a drought prone region, then wheat lines that are semi-dwarf may never emerge from the soil. And that causes a huge problem for crop production. Yeah, it's a huge problem. <laughs> no no crop, no production, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so we're speaking with Dr. Philippa Borrell. She's in the Department of Crop Genetics at John Innes Center in the UK. And this is the Talking Biotech Podcast by Calabra, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Collabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A A-P-P. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. We're speaking with Dr. Philippa Borrell. She's at the John Innes Center, and we're talking about dwarfing and why it's important in plants and some of her work that indicates there are new mechanisms to create a dwarf plant that are really kind of surprising. So what are some of the alternative networks that could control dwarfing? So in wheat, the conventional dwarfing gene that was used was one that makes the plants insensitive to the gibberellic acid. So the plants can't sense gibberellins, so they don't elongate like they would normally. So in wheat, when we've been talking about alternative dwarfing genes, so options that we can use that aren't the standard conventional gene. Often, um, we haven't known about what mechanism underlies these alternative dwarfing genes, but in recent years, a couple of genes giving these alternative dwarfing phenotypes have been cloned and these turn out to be involved in making gibberellin to start with, which is exactly the mechanism that was used in the rice semi-dwarf varieties coming from the green revolution, kind of con continuing this gibberellic acid story. Yeah. And, and I guess the thing that comes to mind to me is what, how do you know that you have a dwarfing situation where something just isn't elongating or just a plant that is just pathetically ill and just doesn't want to grow? Yeah, so I think that's an obviously a really key question because you don't want to just grow a sick plant that's never going to get very big and be very useful for agriculture. The semi-dwarf varieties, they generally have similar size leaves and other organs, so it's mainly the height that's affected rather than other organ size. There might be some small effects on the grain size depending on the exact genetic background and the particular dwarfing gene that's been used. But in general, these plants develop at a similar rate to the tall plants that they're compared with, but then they just kind of over time, it's tall. Yeah. And I, I guess I asked the question like a, like a geneticist and a molecular biologist and not like a wheat farmer, that if the plant produces wheat, who cares what's wrong with it? <laughs> and, and, you know, that's, that's, I, I work with a lot of farmers and I'm learning very quickly that if it works and it's, and it's broken, it, it, it's fine as long as it works. <laughs> So your recent paper talks about this gene called RHT13, and this would be a gene that if we looked at it by structure and, you know, what kind of gene it is, it belongs to a normal gene family that's pretty well understood. 
it, it doesn't seem like it would have some kind of role in dwarfing. So what, what kind of protein does it encode? Yeah, that's exactly right. So the RHT13 gene encodes an NBLRR protein, which is a nucleotide binding leucine rich repeat protein. And this type of gene is usually thought of to be associated with disease responses. So if a plant's exposed to a pathogen or a pest, then these MBLRR genes act or proteins act as sensors to detect the disease coming in onto the plant. And do we have an idea of how many of these there are in a plant like wheat? So there are probably hundreds to thousands of these individual MBLRR genes in the wheat genome. And so this one, does it seem that it has somehow specialized either in does it still play a role in disease or is this strictly maybe playing a role in cell expansion somehow? So we don't really know the answer to that question. That's a topic of ongoing research. We have some hints it might be also still involved in disease resistance, but we think what's unique about this particular MBRR gene is the allele that causes the dwarfing phenotype has a mutation in it. So there's one single change to the amino acid sequence gives it this effect on the height of the plant. Yeah, so it's a mutation in the normal gene. So the gene is normally required for correct vigorous growth, and it's this mutation that causes the dwarfing effect. Do I have that correct? Current hypothesis is more that normally the gene is kind of usually present as an inactive protein, and then if it sensed a disease, then it would react and cause downstream signaling to respond to that disease. In the mutant version that we've identified, then the protein is always switched on. So it's an autoactive protein. And this means that it's kind of triggering different downstream signaling pathways when maybe it shouldn't be. And that means that resources are perhaps re redistributed that would normally use, be used for growth. And that causes the reduction in height. That's our, our current hypothesis. Ah, very good. And is this conserved across plants? I mean, do you, is there a possibility that we can make another dwarfing rootstock that doesn't have a gibberellin problem? Yeah, I think it's possible. So it's known in other plant species that these autoactive MBLRR genes, which would be like RHT13, can cause this kind of reduction in growth because they're autoactive. But often those genes are associated with some penalties. So the autoactivity causes necrosis, so like small spots of cell death. So on the leaves, you'd see like brown flecks, uh, which isn't a desired trait in a, a crop species. But what's unique about the RHT13 allele is that we didn't observe any of these necrotic flecks. We don't know the molecular reason for why we don't see that, but it gives us kind of a way in to try and understand that. And then potentially we can engineer autoactive MBLR genes that would be suitable to use also in other crop species. Yeah, this is pretty exciting stuff. So it, it really gives you another opportunity and potentially a new tool to be able to use something like gene editing, like CRISPR or whatever, to engineer virtually any crop to have this autoactive, pro, to have this pro, protein that doesn't build in the penalty of other dwarfing genes. So does that seem like the long-term goal of the project? Yeah, I think that is the, the long-term goal. So we'd like to understand I'm in the wider setting how the RHT13 gene operates in wheat, so in different genetic backgrounds, different environments, and then also to start transferring this knowledge into other crops. And so once you create the mutation using something like gene editing in, say, a major grain like wheat or rice, can you then just use traditional breeding to introduce it to new lines? Yeah, definitely. So you can use conventional breeding, crossing your, your edited line to other varieties of that crop. And I think that's a bit of a long process, so it takes time to cross them and then go down the generations to make sure you 
um, get the rest of the genetic background suitable. So you need to stack other traits like disease resistance or yield components. But yeah, that would definitely be one way to introduce that benefit to a whole range of different cultivars. I guess maybe the last question is, you know, we've been selecting dwarf varieties of lots of different plants for a long time. And do you think that, well, have has RHT13 shown up as being the causal mutation in any other dwarfs? Or is it potentially that the plants that have been affected just haven't been sequenced yet? I'm not sure. So I think that that particular mutation we've seen in the RHT13 wheat is perhaps unique to wheat. And what's also interesting is this gene isn't found in all wheat cultivars, even the, the version that doesn't cause dwarfing. So, the, yeah, so, so it might be that it kind of took a special combination of circumstances. So this particular wheat cultivar that had this specific MBLRR gene and then chemical mutagenesis was done on that to try to make new traits that breeders can select. So this um, particular gene and the particular mutation we've seen, I think, could be quite unique to this wheat line. So what's next for the project? So next in the project is going to be trying to understand a more about the agronomic benefits of the RHT13 allele by growing it in wider field trials in a range of different environments and genetic backgrounds, but also drilling down into the molecular mechanism. I mentioned earlier, we don't know why the RHT13 allele doesn't incur these penalties of things like necrotic spots on the leaves. And so we'd really like to understand how does the signaling downstream of the RHT13 gene work and, and what that can tell us for applying this method into other crops. The thing I don't understand is that, you know, people have been selecting for dwarf wheat varieties for a long time, and wheat breeders have even used genomic selection and new breeding tools to be able to identify the causal mutations in dwarf wheat. So what was it that allowed this to be detected now? Yeah, so this allele for RHG13 has been known for decades, but it's only recently we've got the tools to be able to identify the precise gene underlying RHG13. And one reason is that our reference genome that we usually use in wheat research is called Chinese Spring, and this was fully sequenced in 2018. But when we looked in Chinese Spring, this gene's not actually present. So that really held up the research for quite some time. But more recently, a pan genome project has published multiple wheat genome sequences. And we were fortunate that one of those sequences does contain the RHT13 genes. So that was really the enabling technology to be able to clone this gene. Ah, really good. So a big score for pan genome research. Exactly. <laughs> well, Dr. Philippa Borrell, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. It was really informative and it helps me and other people understand this really important plant trait of not growing so big. So thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. And to everybody else who's listening, thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Join us every week to talk to experts in agriculture and in medicine, plant science, and conservation, because we're learning more and more about the nuts and bolts that make up biology and how they're being applied. It gives us a hopeful future for new products and new techniques and how things are going to change with technology. This is Calabro's Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.